You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All of us have heroes growing up, don't we? Did you have role models when you were growing up? Maybe they were basketball stars, football stars, maybe entire football teams. Maybe it was a movie or a television character or an actor, or it may have been a sibling, an older sibling, an older cousin, a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, somebody that you wanted to be like. They were your hero. They were your role model. They were somebody that you looked up to, somebody that you admired. You wanted to walk like them and talk like them and be just like them. I used to have an uncle that I would follow out to the barn to do chores at my grandparents' place, and he did the chores for my great-grandparents after my great-grandfather got too old to do the chores. And in the wintertime, he would walk out to the barn. This was an uncle that I just admired to death. I loved him, and I still do admire him greatly. And I would follow in his footsteps, walking one footstep after another behind him, and he had his toes that stuck out at about almost a 180-degree angle. It was almost impossible to follow those footsteps, but I would try and walk like him, and even when the snow would melt and I would follow him, I'd find myself kicking my toes out to the sides because I wanted to be like my uncle. And as you grow up out of childhood, I hope that you are do like Paul said, you put away childish things, and your role models are no longer superheroes and actors and TV and movie stars and sports celebrities. I hope that your heroes begin to change. Mine certainly do. And I won't tell you who my childhood heroes were, but I will let you in on a few of some of my modern heroes, people that I look up to and admire today. And really, for me, they kind of fall into three different categories. First of all, I have historical heroes. That's men and women who have influenced history a great deal. They may or may not have been believers. They're just historical figures. At the top of that list for me is Ronald Reagan. And also on that list is George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and Robert E. Lee and William Wilberforce, the great um, England emancipator who who abolished the slavery movement in England. Uh, And then I have my sort of my category of what I would call heroes of the faith. These are people who were believers and have greatly influenced the Christian church. Calvin, Luther, Huss, Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and of course Charles Spurgeon. And then I have sort of a category of biblical heroes, men like Noah and Abraham and David and Samuel and men who I admire like that out of the Bible. But there is one person who, for me, is a hero, and he stands in a category by himself. He is unique and he is without peers. His name is Paul. (gasps) You mean our pastor's hero is not Jesus Christ? What kind of a pastor doesn't have Jesus as his hero? Let me confess something to you. Jesus is not my hero. Jesus is my Lord. There is a world of difference between those two things. To call him my hero is to put him down with a bunch of peers. And he has no peers. Jesus has not demanded heroship. He demands lordship. My heroes I admire, I respect, but not Jesus. I admire Paul. I obey Christ. I respect Paul. I revere Christ. I look up to Paul, but I worship Christ. So he's not my hero. He's my Lord, my King, my God, my Savior, my Redeemer. 
And yes, he is my best friend, but he's a hero is not something that's worthy of putting Christ in that category. So there's one person who, for me, I mean, Christ is above all of that, but there's one person who stands above all three categories in a category by himself, and he encompasses historical heroes, Christian heroes, and biblical heroes. And he really is in a category in which all three of those are subcategories. Because there is no historical figure, not Reagan, not Washington, not Jefferson, not William Wilberforce, that has had the, a fraction of the influence in history that Paul has had. And there is no Christian, not Luther, not Calvin, not Spurgeon, who has had even a fraction of the influence and impact that the Apostle Paul has had. And in my opinion, there is no biblical character, not Abraham, not Noah, not Moses, who has had even a fraction of the impact on history that Paul has had. None of them have left us a model worth following like the Apostle Paul. He is my hero. He is somebody that I revere, not revere, respect, admire, and look up to. And he did say, follow me as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a worthy hero. He is a worthy role model. He's not my Lord. I don't worship him. He has his weaknesses, many of them, and we'll see them as we go through the book of Acts. He was aware of his weaknesses, but he had a lot of strengths that sort of puts him in the hero category. Well, it is... Paul, who is the subject of the next 16 chapters in the book of Acts. As we move from chapter 12 to chapter 13 of Acts, the, apostle, uh, the, the writer, Dr. Luke, changes main characters from Peter to Paul just as fast as you can change channels on a television set. Without any editorial fanfare, without any kind of commentary, he just drops Peter and he picks up Paul. And Paul is the focus of the book for the rest of the book of Acts. And so last week we said farewell to Peter and we looked at some of the things that he had influenced and some of the things that influenced him and made him such an effective apostle and gave him the ability or really how God used him to lay the groundwork for the Apostle Paul. And today, before we begin Acts chapter 13, we need to re-familiarize ourselves with the Apostle Paul. We need to go back and look at what Luke has revealed about Paul in the first 12 chapters sort of bring that up to speed, chart the course for the next 16 chapters so that we can really have in our minds all of the details about who Paul is because he is going to be the central focus of the rest of this book. Because for Luke, the Apostle Paul is the hero of the book of Acts without any argument. Paul is the central character. It's all about Paul. Acts chapters 1-12 to lay the groundwork for Paul. They really explain how Paul got to where he was. And really Luke just tells us how the groundwork and the stage was set for Acts chapter 13 through 28. Most of that was preparatory for the main character, Paul the Apostle. So we're going to refamiliarize ourselves really with two things. First of all, we're going to look at, I'm going to remind you of the central purpose for the book of Acts. And then second, the central person in the book of Acts. The central purpose and then the central person. Now, we've talked about the purpose of the book of Acts. Really, we did this before we started chapter 1. In the introduction, I told you that basically the theme of the book of Acts is the sovereign direction of God as He directs the church in its growth from Jerusalem to Rome. It is the sovereign leading and the sovereign direction of God as He directs the growth of the church from Jerusalem to Rome. 
Now you've heard some of the purpose of the book of Acts throughout the first 12 chapters. Maybe so much so that you already know some of these details. And if that's the case, then I hope so. I hope that you will hear it from me to the point where you never forget it so that when your children and grandchildren are sitting on your lap and they ask you the question, as I'm sure they will, Grandma, Grandpa, why did Luke write Acts? You'll be able to tell them because you heard me say it so many times you can't get it out of your head. He wrote the book of Acts to show us how God sovereignly directed the growth of the church from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. In doing that, Luke really does two primary things. First of all, he shows us the growth of Christianity. Without the book of Acts, how bereft would we be of understanding in the early church? What would we know? We would read through the Gospels and we would read of Jesus' death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and the Great Commission. And then if it weren't for the book of Acts, we would turn from the book of John to the book of Romans. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul? Who is Paul? An apostle. And we would go back and we would read our Gospels and search for the Apostle Paul, and he's not there. And we would say, where did Paul come from? I got apostles. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Andrew, even Judas is there. But Paul, an apostle, how did Paul get saved? How did he get commissioned to ministry? What was the church like in the early years? What did they preach? What did they do? How was it structured? Who ran things? And, and, and the book of Romans, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at Rome. Who is Paul? And how did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome? All the way across the then known world. We wouldn't be able to answer that. And then we would get done with Romans and we would hit Corinth, the church in Corinth. Here's Paul again, writing to the church in Corinth. How did the gospel get into Corinth? How did the gospel get into Galatia? How did the gospel get to Philippi and Ephesus and the island of Crete? We wouldn't know any of those things if it weren't for the book of Acts. So really the book of Acts shows us how a Jewish church in Jerusalem of 120 people became a Gentile church in Rome and how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome and all over the world so that within... 250 years of the ascension, the gospel would permeate every corner of the Roman Empire, every status level of the citizenry, every city, every nook, every cranny to the point where Constantine the emperor would just declare it the official religion of the Roman Empire in 313 A.D. with the Edict of Toleration. You can't beat them, join them. Took over Rome. It took over the entire Roman Empire. How did that happen? That's what Luke shows us. How did a Jewish church in Jerusalem become a Gentile church in Rome with countless thousands of people all over the then known world who were believers in Jesus Christ? Luke accomplishes that. But second, Luke also offers to us in the book of Acts a defense of Christians and a defense of Christianity. The book of Acts was written somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D. As you get to the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 28 is in his own rented quarters. He's under house arrest, staying with a guard who is to guard him. And people are coming and leaving freely, and he's teaching and proclaiming the things of God freely, unhindered, as people come into his house. And he's discipling and he's ministering. He's not in prison, but he is under house arrest. And he's awaiting trial. 
Because throughout Acts chapter 21 through 28, we have Paul standing before Felix, standing before Festus, standing before Agrippa, with all of these charges that have been brought against him. And finally he says, I appeal to Caesar. And they say, off to Rome you go. And so they ship him off to Rome, and the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, teaching and preaching under house arrest, waiting for his trial. Why doesn't Luke record for us the death of his hero? Because his hero hadn't died by the time he finished the book of Acts. So it happens, it ends up right before the Apostle Paul is released from his first imprisonment. That's when Luke writes. At that time, Christians had fallen underneath all kinds of these attacks. It's an illegal religion. It's idolatrous. They won't hail to Caesar as king. And there was this undercurrent, and it was a strong one that had been building for 30 years, in which Christians were demonized, they were hated, People saw them as a disruption to society. People would become Christians. They'd get rid of their idols and stop attending the temple. And it began to infringe upon all of these other religions and worship of all of these other gods. And they were saying they caused riots. They're worshiping an idol. And so Christians had kind of fallen under fire. And opinion was not on their side. And by the time the Dr. Luke writes the book of Acts, they are about three years away from a hideous persecution under Nero. And Nero was going to burn Rome, and then he was going to blame it on the Christians in order to just push the opinion of the people over the edge. And he would use this as an opportunity to kill thousands. It would be a time of bloodshed like Christians had never seen. Nothing under the Sanhedrin, nothing under Saul of Tarsus, and nothing under Herod could ever even compare to what Nero was to do just a couple of years after Acts was written. So what Luke does is he writes a defense, really. It's a very defensive book of the conduct and the ministry and the theology and the approach and the citizenry which were Christians. I ran across a book here a couple months back that I ended up buying because it was so interesting to me. And I thought maybe I was, um, I had a view that was not really articulated by anybody else to the book of Acts until I ran across this book, and I, I thought, well, at least I'm in somewhat good company. I got one other person who thinks this. It's written by John Mock, and the title of the book is Paul on Trial, Acts as a Defense of Christianity. That's the title of the book. And his premise is, and I mentioned this back before chapter 1, that the Theophilus to whom the book is written was Paul's defense attorney. Now, I want you to know as I go off into this that I can't prove any of this. This is speculation, or this is sort of what I would say, it is a very interesting position to take on the book of Acts. John Locke is an attorney, and he's writing from an attorney's perspective. And he says, as I read through the book of Acts, I see that the Apostle Paul would have been a brilliant client. You would love to have the Apostle Paul because he knew his rights, he knew Roman law, he knew Jewish law, and he used those to his advantage and for the proclamation of the Gospel. And he chronicles in his book, 14 different charges that are brought against Paul, his gospel, and his ministry in the book of Acts. 14 different charges, including that Paul was guilty of inciting riots, that he promoted an illegal religion, that he was bad for society, and that he disobeyed Caesar. Those were the charges that are brought against Paul through the book of Acts. But then John Mock also goes on to observe that there are 59 arguments of defense presented in favor of Paul by Luke. In other words, as Luke writes, he says, here's the charge that was brought against Paul, but here are all the reasons why that charge is false. And he offers 59 defenses of Paul and his gospel 
It is really a very defensive book where he portrays Paul as the hero. He said, here's what they said about him, but they weren't true. I was an eyewitness. I saw the whole thing. Here's what really happened, and here's how it unfolded, and here's what he said, and here is his speech, here is his doctrine, here is his practice. He's defending Paul. So it really, the book of Acts is a defense, and it shows us what Christians were really like. It's a historical document from an eyewitness who says Christians are not guilty of inciting riots. They're not violent. They're not idolaters. They are the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law and the prophets. So he shows us the spread of Christianity, and he offers to us a defense of Christians, and particularly our chief proponent, Paul, and his gospel and his ministry. It's a very defensive book. Well, that's the central purpose of the book of Acts, to show us the sovereign direction of God as he directed the growth of the church from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, and it accomplishes two things. It shows us the spread of Christianity, and it offers to us, or for us, a defense of Christianity against its early critics. Now second, let's look at the central person in the book of Acts. I would say that Paul is the hero of the book of Acts. Now why would I make that claim? Two reasons, really. First, because of the amount of material that Luke gives us on Paul. Acts chapters 1 to 12, the central character is Peter. There's other characters that come up. But the central person of the whole book is the Apostle Paul. More time is spent on Paul than on Peter or on anybody else. And as you read through the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, it's not exclusively Peter, is it? Who else comes in? Well, Stephen is there. Philip is there. Barnabas is there. Even Paul is there. Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11. He comes up. So even though Peter, Luke uses Peter as a central character in the first 12 verse cha- chapters, it's not all about Peter. There are other people. But listen, once Luke zeroes in on Paul, it's all about Paul. Nobody else takes the spotlight off of Paul for the next 16 chapters. Everything revolves around Paul. The whole book revolves around four journeys that Paul took. Three missionary journeys, and then one one-way trip to Rome, where the book ends. Everything in Luke's universe for the next 16 chapters revolves around Paul. He is, uncontestedly, Luke's hero. He was... His traveling companion, Dr. Luke, was his personal physician. He was there with Paul for a couple of his missionary journeys as well as his entire trip to Rome. And he was with Paul in Rome while Paul was busy in house arrest. Luke was there. And Luke was with Paul all the way to Paul's death. Remember at the end of 2 Timothy, Luke, Paul says, Everybody has abandoned me. Only Luke is with me. Everybody was gone. Titus and Tim- Titus was on the island of Crete. Timothy was in Ephesus. Demas, having loved the present world, has forsaken me. Paul said in my first defense, no one stood with me. Everybody has abandoned me. Only Luke is with me. Paul is Luke's hero. Because of the bulk that Luke gives attention to the Apostle Paul, but there's a second reason, and it's because of how Luke presents Paul in his book. You read through the book of Acts, and you will get a different picture of Paul than you get when you read his epistles. In fact, it's 180 degrees the opposite. As you read through the book of Acts, Paul is presented as a conqueror for Christianity. He is busy. He is active. He is articulate. He is brilliant. He is skillful. He has capabilities. He is gifted. He goes from city to city proclaiming the gospel, and he plants a church, and he assigns elders to that church, and off he goes to the next city. City after city, province after province, all over the Roman Empire, at breakneck speed. And we are hardly, Luke hardly records anything negative about Paul. He is heroic. 
He is victorious. He is valiant. He is articulate. He's a gifted speaker, a brilliant theologian. That's Luke's perspective. But then you say, Paul, what do you think of yourself? And you read Paul's epistles and what do you get? I'm the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. I'm the least of all the saints. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I'm the least of the apostles and I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I'm like one who was born out of due season. I'm like a miscarried child, the Apostle Paul writes. I'm weak. I'm the scourge of the earth. I'm rejected by all men. I give myself to be killed daily. I'm just a drink offering to be poured out in the sacrifice and service of your faith. Faith, Philippians chapter 2. That's Paul's perspective of himself. For Luke, Paul was the hero. He doesn't present to us the side of the Apostle Paul that comes through in Paul's own writings. It's a whole different picture of Paul. And it's a very heroic picture. Now I want you to, what we need to do is sort of review what it is that Luke has told us about Paul up to this point. So I want you to turn in your book of Acts to chapter 8. What is it that has led us to chapter 13? And what do we know about Paul that Luke has told us so far? The very first time that we see the Apostle Paul is before he is a believer, and it is in connection with Stephen in the synagogue, Acts chapter 7, verse 57, after Stephen had given his defense and he had indicted the entire nation for the rejection of God, and even those who were listening to him, he said, you're you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart, and you reject the Word of God just like your forefathers did. And this cut them to their heart, cut them right to the chase. And they gnashed their teeth at him when they heard this. And verse 55 says that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up and he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they couldn't bear that, so they cried out, trying to drown out his voice. They picked up stones and they rushed him outside of the city. And they put him out in the middle of this pit, or pushed him down in this pit where they would stone people. And before they could get really wound up with their rocks and get a good swing at Stephen with their stones, they took off their coats And Luke says they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, did they drag him in off the street and say, hey, we'll pay you five bucks to watch our coats? Some young boy? That wasn't it at all. The fact that they laid their clothes at his feet indicates to us that Paul was behind the whole thing. He had orchestrated this whole event. It was the synagogue of the men from his home province and his hometown in Jerusalem that had orchestrated the whole thing. Stephen had debated some of them publicly. Maybe it was Saul. And they didn't just drag him in off the street because Paul later on in the book of Acts in some of his trials will say that he was guilty because he stood there and he watched Stephen die and he held the coats for those who stoned him. He was implicit in the whole thing. He was involved in the whole thing. Now, maybe he orchestrated it. Maybe he didn't orchestrate it. Maybe he just helped execute it. Maybe he had a planning role However it was, he was complicit in it. And when it came time to stone Stephen, he held the people's coats and he stood by and he watched it all happen. And it just fed his bloodlust. Because from that day forward, Luke says in Acts chapter 9, Paul went, or Acts chapter 8, he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death and on that day a great persecution arose. That's what sparked it for Saul. If we can get away with killing Stephen, certainly we can get away with killing other Christians. So beginning on that day, Paul would go house to house rounding up believers, putting them in prison, and persecuting them. 
And this caused the Christian church not to implode, not to be squashed out, but to spread. And the next time we see Paul is in Acts chapter 9. He's still involved in persecution. But this time he's taking it out beyond the city of Jerusalem. Because because of his persecution, Christians had spread out into Samaria all the way to Damascus. And Paul knew there were Christians outside of Jerusalem and he was going to go after them. So he got letters from the chief priest, Caiaphas, Annas the high priest, giving him permission to go out and round up believers and bring them to Jerusalem bound to face trial and likely execution. Now that indicates to us that the Apostle Paul would have known Caiaphas and he would have known Annas. He was a Pharisee. He had been educated under Gamaliel. Acts chapter 22 tells us where Paul confesses, I was educated under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a member of the synagogue. Paul is a student of Gamaliel in that intimate, close-knit circle of Pharisees would have been familiar with all of the Sanhedrin, all of the teachers, all of the high priest family. He knew Annas and he knew Caiaphas. And listen, you don't just walk up to the high priest's door and knock on it and say, Hi, I'm Saul of Tarsus. Nice to meet you. I'd like some papers with your name on it, your signature, giving me permission to kill people. <laughs> you don't do that. He had to have known those people. And he knew them intimately. And Caiaphas and Annas could trust him. They knew his zeal. They knew, we give this guy a letter to kill Christians, man, he'll do it. He's our go-to guy. And so they did. And off to Damascus he runs. And as he's approaching the city of Damascus, bright light from heaven, folks, it drove him to the dust, to his knees, and then prostrate. He couldn't get up. It blinded him. And he has what Paul calls a revelation of Jesus Christ. He saw the risen Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives the list of people who saw Christ. and He says, last to me he appeared as one untimely born. He saw the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he knew who it was. Didn't quite want to admit it just yet. Who are you? Lord? Yeah, he knew who he was. And Jesus essentially said to him, get up, drop your papers. You belong to me now. You're mine. I've appointed you an apostle to the Gentiles. And I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my sake. And Paul got up blinded and he went into Damascus, not the triumphant persecutor that he was when he left Jerusalem. Now he was a humbled believer in Christ. He was baptized by Ananias. And after his baptism... He was recommissioned, or really Ananias reiterated Christ's commission to him as an apostle. And Paul immediately went out into the synagogues and began to preach that Jesus was the Christ. Incredible. Just within days of his conversion, he goes in and he stands before the people and begins to argue the very faith that he once sought to destroy. In Galatians chapter 1, as we bring it into the book of Acts and its narrative, and we begin to sort of mesh those two accounts, Paul's account in Galatians and Luke's account in Acts, we see that the Apostle Paul left Damascus and he went out into Arabia and the surrounding regions preaching Christ. And after three years, he came back into the city of Damascus where he did something to anger the king of Damascus and the king wanted his head. I think Paul likely preached Christ. And that angered the king. The king wanted him killed. So they let Paul down in a basket through the wall by night and he fled. And this is three years after his conversion. He fled and he went to Jerusalem. That was the first time he had been back. And when he got to Jerusalem, guess what he found? He found that those who were once his friends and his confidants now hated him because he preached the very faith he once sought to destroy. And those whom he now loved, the church and Christians, kept him at arm's length. They didn't want anything to do with him. 
Because they were afraid that Paul was trying to get into the church to do from the inside what he could never do from outside, and that is to destroy them. And it took Barnabas, you remember, who in grace and at great risk came up to the Apostle Paul and brought him in and introduced him to the Apostles Peter and James. And Galatians tells us he was there for two weeks and he made everybody mad in Jerusalem. All his old buddies in the synagogue wanted to do to Paul what he had done to Stephen. And so the Christians ushered him out to Caesarea and shipped him off to Tarsus. And then that's the last we hear of the Apostle Paul until we get over to Acts chapter 11. Paul was in Tarsus after the church has spread through Samaria and, of course, through the Gentiles into Caesarea, and it's really growing. There's a church started in Antioch where multitudes of people are coming to know the Lord, large numbers of people coming into this church, which is Jewish and Gentile. Barnabas goes down to check it out, and he sees the grace of God there, and he says, I know the perfect person to help me out in ministering and teaching in this church, Saul. So he rushes off to Tarsus. With great effort, he finds Paul, and he brings him back to Antioch, and the church in Antioch flourished under his ministry. As multitudes came to the Lord, and multitudes were taught the Word. The Apostle to the Gentiles. Now from all of that, let me tell you some things that we can deduce and know about Paul. I think first of all, he was a person of great means, financial means. If he wasn't personally, his family certainly must have been, because you do not get an education from Gamaliel if you're just anybody. You have to be able to arrange that. You have to be able to pay for that. He grew up in Tarsus. He was well-educated Jew, well-educated Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. When it came to the law, Paul knew it. And then he was, after having been grown up, he gets an education with Gamaliel. That's not available to just every Jewish boy on the street. Gamaliel didn't go out and walk through the streets of Jerusalem and try and put together a Sunday school class. We're talking about the elite of the elite of Judaistic education. The Apostle Paul had to have been able to, or his family had to have been able to arrange that and to pay for it. And so when Paul says, for Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things, I think that's what he's talking about. Not only his means, not only his reputation, all of his influence. He was an influential individual. He was a Pharisee. He knew Gamaliel. He knew Caiaphas. He knew Annas. He knew the priests. He knew the Sanhedrin. He was an up-and-coming star in Judaism. He was a brilliant man. Theologically, he is articulate. He is concise. He is brilliant. He's well-educated, knows the Jewish law, knows the Roman law. If you want a mind to sit under and to hear the most brilliant of his day, you would choose Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. He's the go-to guy because of his influence and because of his intellect. And let me tell you something else that comes out about Paul. He was zealous like no other man. When the Apostle Paul sunk his teeth into something, friends, it was all over but the bleeding. He didn't let up. When it came to persecuting the church of God, Jerusalem was not enough for him. It was Damascus. And anywhere else that Christians would have gone. And if Christ had not arrested his attention and his obedience on the road to Damascus, he would have taken his persecution to the remotest parts of the earth and he would have fought till his dying day to kill every Christian and to wipe out every remnant of Jesus Christ. He was a passionate, zealous, energetic person. Focused, single-minded. That's why in Ephesians he says, this one thing I do, I press onward. He was a single-minded, focused individual. And when Christ arrested that, he took all of that natural ability and he channeled it into his service. So that once he becomes a believer, guess what he does? Goes to the synagogue to preach Christ. 
and he's hated there. He goes out into Arabia and preaches Christ until they can't stand him. Then he comes back to Damascus and he preaches Christ until the king wants his head. I'll leave Damascus. He goes to Jerusalem and preaches Christ two weeks and they ship him off to Caesarea. And then he goes into Tarsus and preaches Christ and then back to Antioch and preaches Christ. He is a zealous, single-minded, focused individual, passionate. Listen, if you wanted to keep up with the Apostle Paul, you had to run. You had to be passionate too. He goes on from city to city at breakneck speed and he accomplishes more in 15 years than most people accomplish in 15 lifetimes. A passionate, zealous individual. My friends, when Christ got a hold of that, it was all over. You want somebody to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth? Paul's your guy. You hand it over to him, man, it'll get done. And he never sat still unless he was in prison. Nobody passed him. Nobody saw him sitting still. Incredible man. You ever wonder what Paul looked like? I've wondered that. Yeah, he gets he gives little indications to us throughout his writings of of uh, what he thought of his own appearance, what other people said of his appearance and his preaching. I've often wondered what did Saul of Tarsus, what did the Apostle Paul look like? If he were to walk in here, what would we see? There's nothing in the Bible that tells us, gives us a description of Saul. There is one historical document dating from around 180 A.D. that gives us a very brief physical description of Paul. Now keep in mind, this is 120 years after Paul's death in 60 A.D. It comes from an apocryphal, that is a non-canonical, a non-biblical book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. Now supposedly Thecla traveled with the Apostle Paul and was a disciple of Paul and wrote this book. I wouldn't bet on any of that. It's filled with inaccuracies and things like that. But there is the oldest and only physical description that we have of the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't have time to read it. Well, maybe I will. (laughs) Here's what the Acts of Paul and Thecla say. Quote, A man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long and hooked. End quote. Bald? Bow-legged, short, his eyebrows came together in the middle, long hooked nose. Friends, that's hardly flattering. That's hardly flattering. Paul said to the Corinthians that there were some who said of him, his physical presence is not impressive. Now, were they talking about his preaching or were they talking about his looks? Or were they talking about both? His physical presence is not impressive. Now, you don't have to be good-looking looking to be somebody's hero. That's good news for me. You don't have to be good looking to be someone's hero. This was the type of man that the Apostle Paul was. Now what's what's left for Paul after Acts chapter 13? Like I said, there's three missionary journeys and one trip to Rome. So let me sort of chart the course for you. I hope I didn't just destroy your vision of Paul as some Cary Grant style, beefy, handsome movie character apostle from the Bible. Um, Maybe when the apostle, listen, as time goes on, our physical descriptions of people get better, don't they? Think about that for a second. That's 120 years after Paul lived. If that's improved, he may have been worse than that. Or that may have been, and this was, this was to put Paul in a good light. He may have been worse than that. It certainly wasn't trying to be critical of Paul because this writing was supposed to put him in a good light. Where was I? Acts chapter 13. There's three missionary journeys and one trip to Rome. The first missionary journey begins with Acts chapter 13, 
after his call in verses 1 through 3, Luke says, verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. So they're off sailing on their first missionary journey. The first missionary journey takes us to Acts chapter 15, verse 35. Turn over to Acts chapter 15, verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. So now they're back in Antioch. Having left Antioch, they arrived back in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. The second missionary journey takes us from Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. The second missionary journey takes us over to chapter 18, verse 22. They take their travels and they arrive back, 1822. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So he arrives back in Antioch after the second missionary journey. Now involved in the first missionary journey in that section is the Jerusalem Council with the controversy over circumcision. We'll get to that. In the second missionary journey is his missionary journey, his long stay at Corinth. He comes back to Antioch. His third missionary journey begins in 18, verse 23. Having spent some time there, he left and he passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And the third missionary journey takes us through to the end of chapter 21, where Paul lands back, not in Antioch, but in Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 21, Paul is seized in the temple and all of these charges fly. And then he stands trial before Felix, before Festus, before Agrippa, appeals to Rome. And the fourth journey is from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And everything revolves around the Apostle Paul for those chapters. So that's what's ahead. Three missionary journeys and one trip to Rome. Now, 30 to 40 minutes on a Sunday morning is not nearly adequate enough time to do justice to a man like this, which is why I'm glad we have 16 chapters to really focus in on the Apostle Paul. So let me sum up this biographical sketch from the book of Acts with sort of three things that we notice about Paul. The first is his passion. First thing we notice about him is his passion. He was a passionate man. When it came to preaching, he was passionate. When it came to teaching, he was passionate. When it came to the church, he was passionate. Paul did not do anything with mediocrity. Everything he did was with excellence. Everything he did was with passion. He poured his life, his energies, his entire being into every enterprise that he tackled. And he did it with passion and with zeal that would have been contagious to the people around him. He was a passionate individual. You want to get a a glimpse of his passion for the Gospel, read Galatians. If you want to see his passion for the church and for other believers, how he broods over them like a mother does her children or like a father does his children, then you read First and Second Thessalonians. If you want to see Paul's passion for sound doctrine, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and his passion for preaching, everything he did, it was an emotional, pour-yourself-into-it thing. Never did he say, eh, I can do that, I guess. I'll volunteer for that. It's just a missionary trip. I'll be back in a couple years, right? Sure, I can do that. We'll plot along, make the little short-term mission trip, come back, settle down with a wife and kids. You're not settling down with a wife if you look like that. (laughs) You might as well take three missionary journeys and a trip to Rome. The second thing we notice about the Apostle Paul, not only his passion, but also his accomplishments. Apart from Jesus Christ, who is the God of history, no single man has accomplished what the Apostle Paul has accomplished. In an age without cell phones, fax machines, internet, websites, email, mass transit or mass travel or postal service, without radio, without television programs, even without 
a website, and even without a printing press. Think of what the Apostle Paul did. He wrote half the books of the New Testament. He planted churches everywhere he stepped, from Antioch all the way to Rome and most of the rest of the Roman Empire. He took the gospel to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. He discipled and he taught and he preached and he defended Christianity and himself. He traveled from city to city and made three long, arduous missionary journeys in which he proclaimed the word and planted churches and appointed elders and discipled Christians. He did all of this while earning his own support as a tent maker without inflicting his financial needs upon any one of the particular churches that he was with. He discipled and he mentored such notable greats as Timothy and Titus and Silas and took those men with him and had influence upon Priscilla and Aquila and Luke and countless others. And read the book of Romans, chapter 16, if you want to see the number of people that Paul lists that he had influence in their lives. Paul did all of that. And he preached the word and he taught in city after city after city. All the way to Rome. And his, his fame became so, he became so infamous and his fame so widespread that people would say of him, having never seen him, we've heard about this man, how he turns the world upside down with his preaching. What a statement. We've never seen him, but we've heard what he has done. It spread all over the Roman Empire, and he preached the gospel to Roman rulers, including Felix, Festus, Agrippa, and Nero at the end of his life. And then his influence goes on long after his death. Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, Huss, Wycliffe, Edwards, Spurgeon. Folks, what a litany. What an impact. He did all of that. His thinking, his writing influenced the men that ended up sparking the Protestant Reformation, the Industrial Revolution, and the American Revolution. Arguably, he is the single most influential human being who has ever lived. The Apostle Paul. Does the glory go to him? No. The third striking thing we notice about the Apostle Paul is his humility. Oh, did Paul ever see himself as a hero? No. Nope. Paul ever see himself as the great man that he was? No. Nope. What was Paul's view of himself? Chief of sinners? Least of the saints? least of the apostles, not even fit to be called an apostle. For Paul, Paul was dispendable. He was expendable. He was disposable. He can get rid of me. I'm just something he said to be poured out on your faith. Paul would say that he is less than you. Can you imagine that? He would say he was less than me. And yet, who among us has accomplished even a fraction of what that man has done? But in his mind, I'm the least of all the saints. Wherever you fall on that list of saints, Paul's under you. That was his view of himself. His humility is remarkable because the glory doesn't go to Paul. Paul knew that and you and I know that. The glory goes to Christ. Paul is and Paul was who Paul was because of Christ. Paul said it's I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I'm a vessel, I'm a tool, I'm disposable, I'm expendable. I am an apostle, yes, but I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. I'm just an instrument. I'm a dead man, a walking dead man, because I live by faith in Christ. So everything he did was about Christ. None of the glory goes to Paul. It all goes to Christ. And we can remember with D.L. Moody, who said that the world has yet to see what God can do through a man or a woman who's completely yielded to him. 
The world has yet to see what God can do through a man or through a woman who is completely yielded to Him. We get a glimpse of that in the Apostle Paul. His humility is staggering, which is why after talking about his life as a persecutor, his conversion and the grace of God, and his call to be an apostle, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, he's saying, it's not about me. It's not about my apostleship. It's not about my accomplishments, my life, my ministry. It's about Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And friends, if you want to see in living color what it means to live Christ, then you've got to get familiar with the Apostle Paul. No other way of seeing that in living color. And we'll begin that journey next week in Acts chapter 13. Let's pray. Father, you've given to us so many role models and so many examples in our lives and in the faith and in your word. And we just thank you for the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. He has influenced all of history and all of us in so many ways. We are grateful for that man of God and we pray that in the coming weeks as we look at the book of Acts that you would help us to glean from Paul's life and his ministry principles that we can obey and things that we can follow but to keep in mind that above all and beyond all of it it is Christ and Christ alone who is worthy of our worship, our adoration, our reverence and our obedience. And we ask that you would remind us of that and keep us mindful of that as we do seek to learn from this great man of God whom you equipped and called to serve you. And we look forward to the weeks ahead in these chapters and acts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.